As was already mentioned earlier today in a part of our assembly, we are certainly thankful for the opportunity to come together today. And some who have been under the weather and unable to be with us are able to be back. And I know that you're so excited about that and we're excited for you. And certainly as our numbers perhaps are able to improve in, in the weeks with improvements in health, we're certainly excited as a family to be back together as much as certainly possible. You may have already noticed in light of the lesson today that the title alone gives away the particular chapter to which we'll be turning in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. So may I encourage you to be turning to that chapter and we'll cast a spotlight this morning on at least uh, several of the verses found in that chapter as we do so in a way I hope will be encouraging and uplifting and in a way that will truly be mindful of the features of what this chapter has to say. By way of introduction, just a, a few very brief and minor observations, but with them, they will allow us to springboard right into the lesson here in just a few moments. The book of Acts, as you and I know, is something that is a very unique New Testament book. It is the only book that's called a book of history, the New Testament. I say that because, of course, as you look at many of the presentations of the books, this one highlights a powerful note in history. There are three major matters that are often affiliated or associated with the book, and one of them is, it's this book that forms such a tremendous history with regard to many of the later New Testament books. But not only that, it is also the book of Acts that forms for us the details of the church's establishment. The details about those early days of the church and what they did and how they did it. And may I be quick to suggest that you and I, of course, by the inspiration of the Scriptures, are in need of doing what they did the way that they did it. The third element, though, and the one that surely mustn't be overlooked, is that the book of Acts highlights for us a number of explicit examples of what is involved in becoming a Christian. Again, what did they do? Well, today we're going to look at quite likely the premier New Testament example coming out of this book that lets us know the answers to that, that particular question. With that in mind, let me encourage you to turn to verse 26 of Acts 8. And I'm going to read the entirety of this text relating to the Philip and the eunuch. And following that, we'll then revisit and make some comments. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet, then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. That text in Acts 8, 26-40 is a passage quite familiar to us, and no doubt many reflections could be made about it. As you and I begin our consideration this morning, the approach that I shall take, and I'll ask you to do it with me, is we will in many ways take things a verse at a time, or at least a section at a time, and we will revisit the marvelous beauty of what the Holy Spirit has shared. The life and times of what took place here continue to speak volumes about what's involved in becoming a Christian and the considerations that go with the seriousness of service to God. And so as we begin back in verse number 26, we might well remember earlier in this chapter, Philip had been laboring in the area called Samaria. You might recall that in that particular area, that's where he encountered Simon the sorcerer, And it's ultimately where we encounter some amazing things back in verses 12 and 13. But for right now, as we arrive at verse 26, an angel of God brings a message to Philip. You leave the area of Samaria and you go south. Now the wording that's there perhaps in place takes us to a map. A map that allows us to consider the following. Now, the particular writing on that map, admittedly, is somewhat on the small side, so allow me to point out some things, if I might. In that map, you'll note this. First of all, Jerusalem is right here. Notice, just basically west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. But if you could just keep that place in mind for Jerusalem, now let me point out Gaza. That city is right here. So you'll notice this eunuch was in fact on a journey from Jerusalem over to Gaza, at least in this section of his journey, but much more should be said about that shortly. As we thus turn back the slide to go back to our previous one ever so quickly, you'll notice that verse number 26 now informs us of this. The angel had given a message to Philip to travel southward from where he then was, and in so doing... You may appreciate in verse number 26 that the angel did not tell Philip who or what he was going to encounter. He just said, travel south. Now you notice also in that verse he was told the roadway. It was to be between Gaza and Jerusalem. But aren't you impressed? He wasn't told who he was going to meet, what work he would be doing there, or any of the other particulars. I suppose you and I might immediately wonder, that would leave one in such a state of uncertainty. God, what do you want me to do there? 
In essence, God says, that's my business. I'll tell you when you get there. The first order of business for Philip was to trust the God of heaven enough to do what he said. And so you and I notice in the next verse, he arose and went. Apparently with no hesitation, he left behind whatever the work was in Samaria and journeyed southward. Now as we appreciate this verse, it says, Behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. We are immediately introduced to the next individual in this beautiful saga. Not only was it Philip, but there was a eunuch here. We're told he was traveling again from Jerusalem to Gaza, and you and I have already noted roughly on a map that was traveling southwest. But you may note this, who was this eunuch? First of all, he was an Ethiopian. Not only that, he was a man of great authority. Indicative of the fact that not only was he a man of some high position in the Ethiopian government, but he was the treasurer. He was the one under the queen who apparently had charge of the treasure of that, of that particular nation or region. At this point, we must admit the Ethiopian must have been a man of intellect, a man of some capacity and capability to be put in that kind of a position. And yet, he was a religious man. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. Now, beyond all of that, perhaps another map might be in order. And on that particular slide here, you may already at least gain some feeling of the distances that we're going to be imagining. So let's go two slides forward, and let's look at this map. So here's a map of ancient Ethiopia. I might call to your attention down to the far right, the Hashtian area. With it, as you appreciate, Jerusalem is up in the little yellow section at the top. This man, as you can well tell, in the traveling to Ethiopia, would have gone to Gaza, which was here, traveled the Mesopotamia, or rather the Mediterranean highway into Egypt, and then traveled southward to get to what you and I would now recognize as Ethiopia. Now, it's a little bit uncertain exactly where this gentleman may have come from. For the area of Cush, sometimes in the Bible, was also called Ethiopia. Ethiopia proper was really down here. But at the very least, as you and I now use the scale of miles before us, we can gain an interesting conclusion. This man had traveled 1,500 miles one way to worship. Let that sink in. He had traveled 1,500 miles one way to worship, riding in a chariot. That is to say, no doubt facing the various elements that the weather would have brought, the features that would have gone with it. To gain some feeling about the nature of that travel, I pulled up a map and somewhat looked in a little detail at it. Today, if you and I were to make that kind of a journey, by roadway we could easily make that journey in a little over 30 hours. Now that's at a car. You could easily fly it, of course, at an airplane far less than that. But think about how long it would take you to ride in a chariot. My best estimate is somewhere on the order of two weeks. The man rode in a chariot two weeks, 1,500 miles, one way to worship. 
should you and I not be impressed with His commitment to worship to do this? His commitment to engage in what was going to take place? And along the same line, would you be impressed with this? How easy would it have been for someone to say, well, why can't I just worship here in Ethiopia? Why can't I just take the care of the matters here? May I suggest to you, many in our day today would be quick to, to think along that line. Why can't I do it here? And this man had traveled that distance in that inconvenience, riding in a chariot that way. And let's face it, that wouldn't have been the most comfortable ride. And yet he had done it, for he was now returning homeward. So now it was going to be another two weeks to get back, even if the weather was kind and favorable. One month to travel there and back. And that's if he didn't stay hardly any time in Jerusalem. Today, may I suggest to you, think how blessed we are. You can ride ten minutes from your house to the church building in a nice, comfortable, climate-controlled car. While we're here, we can sit on a padded pew and have an air-conditioned or heated building. Doesn't it place an emphasis upon sometimes what our brethren worldwide have had to endure to engage in worship? And by the same token, wouldn't it be useful at this point to note this? There are things like worship that are not done all the time. I can't stay home and worship. I can't assemble with the saints at the house. Now, I know that there are congregations in the New Testament which met in brethren's houses, but it was groups of people who came there. I can't stay at the house by myself and claim to have assembled with the saints. That just simply cannot be. And yet this man had traveled that distance. Does it impress upon us his understanding of worship? Meaning our world today would do well to understand what he did. At the very least, as this gentleman had now traveled that distance, the angel had given Philip some information. Now Philip knows, apparently, that he's going to be meeting somebody. Let's go back to our previous slide, going back to, uh, to that previous two, and let's conclude that one. As we go back to verse number 28, it says this eunuch was reading or returning and sitting in his chariot. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't mindlessly daydreaming even as he was riding in the chariot. He was reading what we would recognize as the book of Isaiah. May I say again, I believe we have every reason to be impressed with this man. Having traveled that distance, and now even after finishing the worshipful activities, he was reading from Isaiah as he was returning on his way. Verse 29 says, The Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. One thing you and I might add as yet another observation. Here was a person reading aloud from the Word of God. Did you notice we know that he was reading aloud because as Philip got near, he heard him reading. May I invite each of us to notice on a few occasions in the Word of God, there is an emphasis given to the public reading of the Scriptures. That was true in the Old Testament, according to Nehemiah 8. And now we find that there was something significant about it in the New. Today, my, may I encourage each of us, as we give thought to the Word of God, sometimes it could be a greatly helpful aid to memory to read it aloud. 
It's one thing to read it in private, and certainly that's an encouraged thing too on occasion. But as we read the Scriptures, may we not overlook the blessing that can come with a public reading of it. That's why even here, there's a part of our service where a gentleman will read to us some verses from the Bible. That public reading is significant. May we never overlook it. Beyond that, let's close that slide by noting this. Verse 29, The Spirit gave Philip the following message, Go and join yourself to this chariot. So you can imagine the scene here was the eunuch riding a chariot some distance from Philip, and Philip had come to the area he was supposed to come. He witnesses or sees this chariot. Now he knows well that a part of his labor and work shall be what's involved in the chariot because the Spirit says, Go and join yourself to it. Let's go a couple of slides forward as we then look at the next element in our, in our set of verses. As we do that, we now come to these observations. A conversation takes place between Philip and the eunuch in the chariot. Verse number 30 says, Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? As we make ready to launch into that next portion of our study, let me pause at this point to emphasize yet another rather remarkable truth. It is not unusual for someone today to make statements along the line that the Holy Spirit's direct intervention is necessary in order for one to be converted. There are a number of denominations that believe this. I'd like you to revisit with me. The Spirit had a role here in the conversion of the eunuch, but what role did the Spirit have? Did the Spirit work directly on the heart of the eunuch? Did He implant some particular message in the heart of the eunuch that led the eunuch to accept what he was supposed to do? The answer in both both cases is no. The Spirit's role was simply to bring the preacher and the and the, the prospective candidate together. The power was always in the Word of God, and it will always be there. Look again at what happened. Verse number 29, The Spirit said to Philip, You go join yourself to the chariot. The Spirit didn't say anything directly to the eunuch. He did not in any way bring some miraculous message into the heart of the eunuch. Nothing like that took place. What the Spirit did is told the preacher where to be so that the right person would hear the message which the preacher needed to preach. That being said, verse number 30, Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. Now you'll notice as you and I close that slide together that the role of the Spirit today is no different. Despite what some may appreciate or think that they know, Again, you probably have heard some make the comment, the Spirit's got to act on a person's heart before he or she can know what to do to be converted. That just isn't so. The Spirit's already told everything that needs to be known. Notice here the Spirit's about to use the work of the preacher, the words of the preacher, and the preacher's words came straight from the Word of God. With that said, Romans 8 verse 14 reminds us again about the place that you and I feel in the character of conversion and the role of the Spirit in it.
as the Spirit brought the preacher together to the eunuch. Let's now see what happened in verses 30 and following as we go to the next slide. In verse number 30, Philip ran to this particular chariot, and you'll notice a question was asked. Philip heard the man reading. By the way, you and I would recognize it as coming from Isaiah 53. That's the place in the scroll from which the eunuch was reading. But then, this rather amazing question. Verse number 30, Understandest thou what thou readest? If you and I were to state that a bit differently, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand the message in it? Take another observation with me. The Word of God can be understood. May you and I never allow someone to convince us that by some way you cannot understand it, that it's above us, that is in some way requiring of a miraculous measure of the Spirit that isn't, isn't the case. It can be understood. Here was even an Old Testament passage. Maybe at times even we can be tempted to think that some Old Testament verse is obscure enough that we can't understand it. That isn't so either. Here was a blatant passage in Isaiah 53. Now, the answer of the eunuch was going to tell Philip a great deal. Do you understand what you're reading? It's clear Philip knew what the passage was talking about. Doesn't that indicate a little lesson for you and me today? When we have Bible conversations with someone, and maybe we are interested in knowing where this person stands on some critical Bible subject, Sometimes the asking of a pertinent question is so critical because by the way they answer it, you'll know immediately. Do they understand what they need to know or not? That's especially true when it comes to the plan of salvation. And it's especially true when it comes to topics otherwise spoken of in such directness of the Word of God. Sometimes it can be related to worship. It can be related to marriage or remarriage or divorce. But in every way, immediately, do you know, do you understand what you're reading? By the way, did you notice the eunuch didn't take that as an insult? There are people today that probably would. Well, the nerve of you to even insinuate that I don't understand. May I say one more time how impressed we might be with this eunuch. He didn't take it as an insult. He was an earnest and honest soul wanting to know what the text is talking about. And so in the next verse he said, How can I, except some man, should guide me? Maybe it makes us wonder, had this passage been one he had heard when he had just been back in Jerusalem worshiping? Had this been a part of what was read during the services there? We don't know that. But at any rate, he was reading in what we would recognize as Isaiah 53. And after being asked, do you understand what you're reading? He responded by saying, how can I except some man guide me? Oh, we need earnest and honest souls like this. Someone willing to say, I would love it if you would use the Word of God to explain to me. What do I need to do to be saved? What's the correct way to worship? What are the other particulars whereby God has revealed these things? This man said, how can I except some man guide me? Notice what that must have indicated to Philip. You and I in our study of Isaiah 53 have often observed it is discussing Jesus the Christ. 
It's discussing His death, the nature of His death, the reason for His death, and the blessed benefit to mankind of His death. It even talked about the way He'd be buried and the characteristic features that would go with it. And so Philip immediately knew that when the eunuch said, How can I accept some man guide me? Philip knew this man doesn't know about Christ. He does not know about the nature of his death, and he does not know the characteristics of being a Christian. That's going to immediately have implication for the verses that follow. As you and I close this slide, may I invite you to notice, did Jesus say in Luke 24, 44, All that's written in the prophets, in the Psalms, and in the writings concerning me hath been fulfilled. So much of the Old Testament pointed directly to the Christ, to His kingdom. When the eunuch said, how can I? Philip knew that he needed to preach Jesus from that point onward. With that in mind, let's close that slide and appreciate this. He desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. As I said, he didn't consider it as an, as an insult. In fact, he invited Philip up into the chariot and earnestly, it seemed, urged him, tell me what this is talking about. Explain it to me. Don't you and I thrill at the thought of souls earnestly and honest concerning the Word of God? As you and I close that particular slide and turn our way to the next one, it brings us to highlight this. Verse number 32, the place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. As we just mentioned, those verses have reference again to the Christ, and now the eunuch said this. Who is this talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself, or was it somebody else? Notice again, the prophet knew, or rather the eunuch knew, that there was an understanding that went with this text. He wanted to know who it was talking about. Today, when you and I read passages like that one or others of the Old Testament that pointed directly to the Christ, may we not lose the sight of the significance of them and what they meant to those living in days gone by and what they could still mean to you and me. Because look how Philip reacted. Philip opened his mouth, he began to speak. And verse 35 says he began at that same Scripture and preached Jesus. Starting from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus. Starting from a passage describing how that he was led like a lamb dumb before his shears, he preached Jesus. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard the fullness of that sermon? Wouldn't you have loved to have heard all the particular passages that Philip may have referenced and quoted? You and I realize well that as he made reference to those things... We now note that the Philip, that the eunuch's reaction was this. Verse number 36. As they went on their way, they came into a certain water. You can again imagine. Philip had been invited to come up into the chariot. They had proceeded along their way. We don't know how many miles may have passed. 
We don't know how many other particulars of discussion may have been a part of that beautiful exposition. But there came to a place where there was some water, apparently close enough to be visible. And the eunuch at that point stopped Philip and said, Here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Can you imagine the feeling that must have come over that gentleman? The understanding of what he now knew. He knew what the text was talking about. He now knew that about the nature of the Christ, and he knew about the church. Philip had apparently explained all of it because none of that's in the Old Testament. None of the particulars about it, and now the eunuch knows it well. And here we find a man who stops the preacher in mid-sermon. He didn't want to wait till the invitation. Water is here now. Why can't I be baptized? The fervor, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the ardency in this man, again, to be impressed. Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? As you give thought to the words that, again, the eunuch used, he now knew what baptism was. Now, the Old Testament couldn't have told him that. There's no direct Old Testament passages that reveal it. Philip had to have taught it. May I say, to preach Jesus is to preach baptism. You can't preach Jesus without preaching baptism. You can't preach Jesus without preaching that element of response and reaction. And so it was that the eunuch said, Here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Today, as you and I give thought to some of the implications of that little statement, I've mentioned a few of them on the slide. Although the Bible does mention more than one kind, if you please, of baptism, the baptism of suffering, the baptism of fire, the baptism, you see, that corresponds to judgment, the eunuch knew about the baptism in water for the remission of sins. In light of that, you and I need to remember today, Paul would later say in Ephesians 4, 5, there is one baptism. There is but one. No wonder in that particular matter, it leads me to say this. Verse number 36 closes, What doth hinder me to be baptized? That's the very message that Jesus had preached in Mark 16, in Luke 24, as well as in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Here, that's the same message Philip was now preaching to the eunuch. The same message that Philip had implanted within him. And now, as you approach the bottom of that slide with me, we arrive at verse 37. After the eunuch had made that statement, the King James puts this verse before us. Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now that verse, though present in the King James translation, is not in most of the other translations with which you and I are familiar. It's not in the ASV. It's not in the ESV. At this point, the oldest manuscripts do not contain it. And that's the reason it's not in them. I simply made that observation before you to note this. The principle of the confession is found in so many other verses. 
Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. 1 John 4, 15. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, and on to, to verses 37 and 38. The principle of the confession is well grounded in the New Testament. So, the fact that we appreciate that this verse, perhaps in the oldest translations, is not there, doesn't trouble us. Rather, it leads us to note this. You and I realize how powerful the confession is. That moment wherein we make the statement, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm sure we've each thrilled many times at the hearing of someone make that statement. Because isn't it true that it makes a public witnessed confession of the nature of that person's devotion through life from that time forward? Through all my days, I'm going to follow the Lord exclusively. He is the Lord of my life from this day forward. Now, those kind of words are thus paramount to understanding what the confession's all about. Didn't Paul tell Timothy that you have witnessed a good confession before many? And so of that we read in 1 Timothy 6. As you and I close that slide then, it now brings us to verse number 38. He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went both of them down into the water. And so yet another lesson we immediately learn. Baptism is not sprinkling of some water on a person's head. It's not merely a circumstance in which a little bit of water is poured on a person's head. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into this water. And in fact, the verse highlights it twice. We learn, you see, that baptism is a burial. And that's otherwise how the New Testament describes it, isn't it? In Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, in Colossians 2, verses 11 and following, we find this remarkable reminder in which baptism is a burial of a body beneath the surface of water. We all understand that when you bury a corpse, you put dirt all over it. You don't just sprinkle some. And so it is that baptism, we learn, by way of its mode, it is a burial. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And verse 38 says, He, that's Philip, baptized him. At that point, when they come up out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit caught Philip away. He had work elsewhere, but aren't you impressed that the Spirit took Philip out of Samaria and brought him to convert one man? To teach one man, doesn't it make you wonder what influence this man had back in Ethiopia? How many others became Christians in light, perhaps, of the influence he led? The Bible doesn't tell us. But doesn't it remind us one more time of what one person, as a soldier of the Lord, can do? Let's close this lesson this way. In our conclusion slide, we easily appreciate this. We have just taken the liberty of just stepping a little at a time through this ancient record, inspired as it was, about Philip and the eunuch. And we've learned many things that have impressed us about the eunuch, and one of them I've, I've saved till now. When this eunuch heard what he needed to do, he didn't make excuses. He didn't throw up supposed justified reasons as to why a better day ought to come later. He did it. Today, that should be my reaction and yours. 
to do whatever God says to do, and don't ask questions about it. Just do it. Maybe there's someone in this assembly today that has arrived at a point in life when you once were a faithful Christian. You know what you need to do. Just do it. Repent of whatever the sins have been, whatever they are, they'll be forgiven. Now, consequences may surely remain for them. God didn't say you'll take the consequences away. But in forgiveness, you can deal with whatever those consequences are. May I say that if you've never become a Christian, just do what God says to do. Your life in Christ will be far better than anything that could be the case without Him. Believe on Him. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Today, the eunuch and this particular text in which he had discussion with Philip is certainly a timeless message and so many things have been an encouragement to us. This song of encouragement has been selected and we're going to stand together in a moment and encourage each other as we sing it. If you need to come forward in a public way, realize that just like the eunuch, it'll be no insult at all. In fact, it'll be a time of rejoicing. Not only by us, but by the angels in heaven, Luke 15, 7. In fact, as you undergo that obedience and make that public declaration, we would be in a position to celebrate with you, rejoice with you. Today, if we can help in any of those ways to do that, won't you come while together we stand and sing?